0: From the bottom of the Marianas Trench, this is ASPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. News for the pelagic-minded.
1: Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund.
2: And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. Hi, Jacques.
1: Hi, Simone. Happy March to you. Yes.
2: You know, um, are you the Ides of March birthday? Am I remembering this correctly?
1: I, I am, in fact, you know, uh, this is my birthday month. Born on the Ides of March, as my teachers used to say, "Beware the Ides of March."
0: Mm-hmm.
2: My mom was a shake. My mom was an English teacher, so <laughs> I remember the Ides of
1: March. Um, yeah, so it's it's Pisces season, and and also it's crawfish season, right? So I always associate my birthday with with crawfish, which I think is a positive.
2: Same, I love that. Me is king cake, so I like that. We move on to the next season with you. <laughs> I will say, um, I, we rarely do this, but I wanted to say we had some great feedback on our discussion with Bren Haas, who's the executive director of CPRA last week. We've had some great feedback on that. So I definitely want to encourage people to go back and listen. It was a great look back and look forward for Bren. We were lucky to have so much time with him.
1: Absolutely. Super informative. And we covered so much ground. So a lot to catch up on on that episode. I highly recommend people go back and listen to it. Um, but Simone, what have you been up to? Were you down in Plaquemines Parish this weekend for the Nutria Rodeo?
2: Jacques, can I tell you um, a story that will take away my terio card? Um, I was. This is several years into working at Restore Retreat, and they were talking about this. This um, it might have been a Nutria Rodeo or a Crab Trap Rodeo. It was one of them. And Jacques, I like did not understand what they were talking. I was like. Like, why would you put nutria? Like, how, how do they rodeo? Like, I'm so confused. Jacques is so stupid. I didn't know. Um, it basically meant a roundup. Um, I, I thought, I, I don't know what I thought. Um, I can't believe I just admitted that. Maybe we could take that out in editing. Um, <laughs> but I did see that it was born out of one guy's idea to do something to get out in the marsh. And it seems like it had a great start.
1: Yeah, I mean, hey, it looks from the pictures that they made a lot of progress. And I just, you know, forever going to have that vision in my head of, you know, Nutria going around a ring, maybe like doing tricks and stuff. <laughs> I, I like, just
2: could not figure out how they got the animals to do what they want and what what did they want them to do. Um, So that's it. We'll forevermore not talk about it. OK,
1: <laughs> well, you know, just like this uh, actual rodeo was born from one person's idea. You know, that's an idea that you have. So maybe <laughs> one day you can make that a reality. Right. We'll see. Dancing Nutria, Nutria jumping through hoops. You know, I, I see a future there, Simone. So do not discount yourself.
2: Thanks for making fun of me, Jacques. I appreciate that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm really excited to get to today's episode. In a way, it's kind of a blast from the past, but checking in with two of our first and favorite guests, right? Um, I think these were the first two individuals that we had ever on Delta Dispatches. And so as we begin, you know, what will be a busy time for our coast, what better way um, to kick that off, than to have them back and talk to us about what we have upcoming and what's been going on in their world. So I'm really excited to bring on—I don't know—we're gonna have to go back into account, but she may be the number one featured Delta Dispatches guest. I know Eric Jen- Johnson was giving her a run for her money, but you know, I think I think she might take it. Um, so Al- Alicia Renfro, staff scientist with the National Wildlife Federation, welcome back to Delta Dispatches.
2: Thank you. Happy to be here, guys. I got to deliver Girl Scout cookies to Alicia.
3: Yes, you did. And you set all my dogs off <laughs> by ringing the
2: doorbell. <laughs> are you already done with the Girl Scout cookies, Alicia? Because lots of people I know are already been through their stash of Girl Scout cookies. No,
3: I've been very good about taking my time and just <laughs> a little just a little at a time. I'm working my way through them now.
2: Well, how's your 2021 going so far, Alicia? So far, pretty good. Good, good. How are the doggies? They're pretty good. I'm hoping they stay quiet.
3: <laughs> <Hold>
2: <laughs> we'll see. So um, we were just mentioning at the top of the show, Alicia, um, that 2021 was a big year for Louisiana's coast. So let's get right to it. We're actually expecting a big milestone this Friday. Can you tell us about that?
3: Sure. Um, this Friday, we expect the draft environmental impact statement for the mid barataria diversion to finally be released. Much awaited event.
1: So Alicia, um, you know, we've talked to our friends at the Environmental Law Institute, and they've really broken down the process of an environmental impact statement, how that fits into NEPA and other laws, and really recommend folks go back and listen to that episode for a great explanation of the process. But what might we expect to see in the draft environmental impact statement as it relates to this project?
3: sure so just like a general thing so this document is part of that national environmental policy act as you said in my very layman's terms of what it is it tells people um in the community and policymakers what they can expect for the project in terms of benefits and impacts um so for this particular document the the draft eis um, we expect it's going to be a lengthy document um, a lot of work has been done to actually look at the project and understand why the project is needed. Um, they will look at some different alternatives of like diversion capacities and look at what this means um, for the environment um, in terms of changes that these different capacities can bring. They'll also look at the future without action and talk about the current status of the Barataria Basin itself um this really this report builds off of an earlier process called scoping which was done back at way back in the summer of 2017 where people were able to outline their concerns and questions um, about the mid-veretaria diversion
2: alicia let's talk about scale how large of an area is this project expected to restore this is truly kind of what do they call that landscape level
3: yeah, so this yeah, this is gonna be an
2: ecosystem
3: scale um project. This project is expected to be build and sustain tens of thousands of acres of coastal marshes in the Barataria basin. Um, you know, building new wetlands is important and we should we should always keep that in mind, but we also need to hold on to the wetlands that we currently have. And this project is a really um, critical step into making that happen. Wetlands are actually surprisingly resilient. Um, As long as they have sediment coming into them, they can uh, maintain their elevation in the face of rising sea levels, and the sediment makes the marsh more resistant to damage by hurricanes. And even when a wetland is damaged by hurricanes, which of course we all know does happen, um, sediment coming into that area can help those wetlands recover naturally without us having to go in with big expensive machinery to fix things that were damaged.
1: So, Alicia, let's talk a little bit about what's at stake. You know, we often see, and and I know you pay close attention to studies that come out that show kind of rates of sea level rise. Um, You know, it seems like they're increasing, right, with each new study. Uh, Last year, we had the most active hurricane season ever on record. Um, So why are projects like the Mid-Beret Sediment Diversion and other kind of large scale sediment diversion projects so vital to confront the future of Louisiana's coast?
3: Yeah, so by putting, by having a steady flow of sediment coming into this area, you can build and sustain marshes and you also give them the tools to help them kind of change with rising sea levels, be more resilient with hurricanes. Um, you know, we have, wetlands are, you know, we always talk about them being delicate, but they are actually surprisingly resilient. And as long as they, we give them the tool to actually Change and modify um, in the face of these things, then they can survive.
2: Alicia, the um, the state this is this is cornerstone and, and milestone in so many ways. And the state's been using techniques like dredging, right, pumping sand or, or sediment from the river to create marshes and barrier islands. This this project is intended to be complementary and also sustainable? Is, is that a fair way to say it? Or, or can you talk about the relationship between dredging and projects just like this?
3: Sure. Um, so Marsh Creation and Bear Island restoration projects are good types of projects, and we should continue to invest in that type of restoration. We're doing a lot on the ground right now and will into the future. But unfortunately, that those projects alone aren't enough. On The best day for a Marsh Creation project is the day you completed constructing it. After that, the soil will compact over time, sea levels will continue to rise, you'll have hurricanes, and in 20 years, you'll have very little to show for that big investment. Um, so if we just rely on dredging, we're also missing out on almost 80% of, what the set of the sediment that the river carries. You know, We talk about the importance of the river sediment, and 80% of that is actually silts and clays that are not deposited Um, along the river bottom that can't be dredged and used for marsh creation. Because sediment is a finite resource, unfortunately, um, these days, we actually have to use as much of the river sediment as we can to build and sustain our landscape. But these types of projects can work together. If you have a marsh creation project located near a sediment diversion project, you can actually sustain that marsh creation project over the long term, rather than have it disappear in that 20 years. And in the case of the mid sediment diversion, there's actually a, um, a large marsh creation project that's located fairly near that area that will be constructed in the near future called the Large um, Barrettary Marsh Creation Project.
1: So, Alicia, I mean, that's, that's a really helpful context in thinking about the projects working together. I know one of the other areas where, you know, scientists and other focus is Looking at the places on Louisiana's coast, there aren't many of them, but there are a few places that are actually building land. Um, You know, thinking about like the Wax Lake Delta, even areas kind of on the east bank of Plaquemines Parish. Um, What do some of those areas have in common and what does that tell us about our opportunity to restore the coast?
3: Yeah, I mean, the one the commonality is that they have river sediment flowing into them, whether it's the Wax Lake Delta and the Chafalaya Basin or even near the Birdfoot Delta. And that's even despite the fact in the Burfa Delta, you had very high subsidence rate. The land is sinking very quickly. But despite that, you're actually having land built in that area, which is impressive in and of itself. So there is enough sediment left to build and sustain land. We just have to use it more strategically and actually put it into the wetlands where it can do the most good rather than have so much of it go off um, the continental shelf as it does these
2: days. So this project, I mean, this is, this is uh, one of the longest we have in terms of timing, too. It's not like you just flip a switch and turn it on after a couple of years of construction. Let's talk about monitoring and adaptive management. How does that play into the diversion once it is constructed and operated? Um, I read that Louisiana has one of the strongest or largest coastal monitoring systems in the world.
3: Yeah, here in Louisiana, we have what's called the Coastal Reference Monitoring System, or CRIMS, as it is affectionately called, which is a network of gauges that's throughout our coast that are used to monitor conditions, tell us how our system is changing, tell us how the restoration projects we've implemented are doing, um, and this system really is important, particularly with the Mid Barataria Sediment Diversion, to monitor like what the project is doing. Um, Is the project meeting the goals that they set out for it are there changes that need to be made so this is where adaptive management comes in and adaptive management is often used as you know it's a buzzword that gets thrown around that doesn't mean a lot when it comes to a lot of different restoration projects because when you build say a marsh creation project how do you adaptively manage it well you can maybe go in and put more sediment on top but that is not is that really adaptive management now for a mid terrier diversion because the diversion is a gated structure that operators control when they open and close it, they can actually change how the operation works in order to make sure that the project is meeting its goals. Um, And in order to do adaptive management in the way that's needed, you know, you have to study, you have to monitor what's going on in the area. It doesn't just happen willy nilly, but um, we use that robust monitoring system that we have in place to understand what's happening in the system and how we can improve conditions.
1: So, so Alisha, I want to talk a little bit about a blog that was recently published by our colleague Rachel Rode, which looked at um, what we consider to be kind of the future without action scenario. Um, I thought it was a helpful way of thinking about the project and, and kind of um, moving forward and what's at stake. Can you help us understand what is the future without action scenario and, and, and kind of what that means as it relates to this project?
3: Sure. You know, a lot of people have questions about what happens to the Baratari Basin if the mid-Baratari Diversion is built and operated, and that's, you know, that's a fair point. But there's also a real question about what happens to the Baratari Basin if you don't build the project. You know, this is a system that has been changing over time. Since the 1930s, it's lost 400 square miles of wetlands, and that loss is going to continue, and the land is going to continue to change. And so it's important to understand that even if we don't do anything, the system is going to change. Um, it's not stable. You're going to have um, changes in where and what fish and wildlife are in the basin. So as land loss, land loss will continue in the basin. Um, the basin itself will get saltier and coastal communities that live around the basin are at more risk for flooding. All of that in a future without action.
1: Yeah. So and we expect that to be kind of outlined to a certain degree in the draft environmental impact statement.
3: Yeah, that will be one of the alternatives that they look at what they do. What happens if they do nothing?
1: Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be counting on you to help us dig into that and more. Um, I wanted to also ask Alicia. So we, we published a blog that featured photographs from Ben Depp, who, um, you know, was featured in the last call for the Bayou films, but he's soared over many parts of Louisiana's coast, um, and he in the blog, he really compares kind of the, the West Bank of Plaquemines Parish to the East Bank and notes kind of the difference in those areas. One is receiving, you know, regular sediment and, and freshwater and nutrients and kind of there's actually land being gained there. The other is is not, of course. One of the points that Ben made is that he's witnessed, you know, not just land being built, but it's it's a diversity of land and diversity of vegetation and wildlife. So, can you talk, talk to us about that and how, you know, the mid-Bear Terror sediment diversion uh, will contribute to not just land, you know, gain or, or preventing land from being lost, but kind of the, the benefits of diverse vegetation, diverse habitat and wildlife um, for wildlife and other species?
3: Yeah, so the natural process of land building is not that land pops up out of the water overnight. Um, It does get there eventually, but you don't just have this land that's above the surface. You also have a lot of things that are happening underneath the water, creating these shallow areas that a lot of fish like and thrive in. Um, You also have diversity of vegetation that can move into the area. And then with that, you also have the wildlife that can take advantage so it's not kind of creating this parking lot of marsh that you can sometimes get with marsh creation projects. You have this like complex system that supports a, a big diversity of different wildlife and vegetation um, that you just can't get in any other way. You got to kind of, it's, it's nature's way of making complexity.
2: Alicia, can I ask you a question about back to the river? Um, there was a study released recently showing that water quality in the Mississippi River has improved over time. That's an argument that we hear a lot about, like, the dirty water, the dirty Mississippi. Do, do you have a take on that, or can you tell us more about that?
3: Yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting study. So they look back. Um, back in the 1970s, uh, the Clean Water Act and Clean Air Acts were passed, and so at that time, the Mississippi River had a lot of lead in it, had a lot of sulfur and a lot of bacteria. Um, and what this study, this study looked at the water quality of the river over time by trying to piece together a bunch of different data sets to look at that. And what they found was that, you know, the lead has decreased significantly, probably because of the Clean Water or Clean Air Act, um, which helps regulate, you know, some of the air emissions from factors and things, and that the water has improved quite a bit as well. Now there's still some work to, to be done to reduce things like nitrogen and phosphorus in the river. But what this study points to is that the river is much
2: cleaner than it used to be. Well, that's good to hear because that is something that people bring up quite a bit when it comes to the river. Jacques, do you have any more questions from Alicia? I feel like, like she's just so great. She answered them all.
1: Well, Alicia, you're just like a a wealth of resources and knowledge always, so we appreciate it. And we just hope that we can stay closely connected to you in the weeks and months ahead to help us digest what what we know will be a large and complex document. So thank you for being on. Um, And for others, you can go to mississippiriverdelta.org slash MidBeretaria to learn more about this project and get involved um, in the weeks and months ahead. Um, and with that, Simone, why don't you go ahead and take the fun question, which is very important and we cannot forget.
2: I, I gave multiple to Bren last week, so I'll take it easy on you, Alicia. Um, and and we'll go back to a standby that we had from earlier um, about what is your favorite Girl Scout cookie.
3: Um, I so I think my new favorite. Are
2: the lemonade cookies? <gasps> they're they're so good. <laughs> they are. They're subtle, subtle, yeah, good they're, they're green uh, flavors. Uh, I can agree with that. Love it.
1: I, I ordered those on a whim and I will have to say that I'm very impressed. And also that's like the one that we have left, because I've been savoring them. So yeah, I <laughs> agree with you on the lemonade cookies.
2: Yeah. So we had to um, we had to set up um, a a little like last minute booth sales long story because I'm I'm Alicia's cookie dealer. But um, the um, I had this panic moment of oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to get any more. And so before the booth even opened, like all the moms bought a whole bunch more cookies. Because <laughs> you have this moment, like I'm not going to get them anymore. Um, so I do have quite the lemonade stash. Um, maybe when when life comes back to normal, we can have a lemonade tea party. Yes, sounds amazing.
1: Good, good to know where I can get my lemonade cookie fix. Um, and with that, it is time for the coastal stat of the week. Um, this week's coastal stat is that because of the $1.4 billion investment over several years, mid construction will have direct positive economic impacts for the community and region. It is crucial we plan a course of action that will increase the region's capacity to create and retain local jobs and harness the ben- financial benefits for the greater good of the community. Over the five-year construction period, spending on building the mid project will create over $1.4 billion in new sales at Firms in Plaquemines Parish. Residents of the parish will enjoy a $98 million increase in new household earnings. Um, And that is from an economic study completed by Dr. Lauren C. Scott. Um, And we will be right back after the break with Steve Cochran, our other first and one of our favorite guests on Delta Dispatches. We'll be right back.
4: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show.
1: Hello, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund.
2: And I'm Samoma Laws with Restore
1: or Retreat. And we are back with another favorite and also our first time ever guest, Steve Cochran, Campaign Director with Environmental Defense Fund, as well as Associate Vice President with Environmental Defense Fund for Coastal Resilience. So Simone, it is so nice after so many episodes, what, 155, 156, to have our first guests on with us um, to mark this milestone.
2: It it makes me laugh because I don't think Steve knew that when he was our first guest that we were going to bring it up every single time we talk about
0: it. So, um, I, I didn't know if you'd still be on the air after a couple of weeks. So doing- <laughs>
2: well, neither did we, Steve. Neither did we? <laughs> yeah, we surprised
1: ourselves there, didn't we?
2: It's still a fluid situation, too, by the
1: way. <laughs> uh, uh, he's on the air lightly, right? Um, but But yes, we have, we've evolved. Hopefully we've improved slightly since that, you know, I I need to go back and I don't know if you have Simone and listen to those first few episodes. They might've been a little bit more painful uh, to listen to at this point, but hopefully we've gotten better and and certainly we can still improve of course, but um, it's been a fun ride for sure.
2: And, and life certainly sure has changed since we started this as well. And so we have to um, give credit where credit is due that, that we've been managing some interesting times as well. But um, Steve, let's start off light. How's your crawfish season going so far? I also, also coincides with snowball season. Importantly. <laughs>
0: That's right. That's right, man. It's actually going really good. We had, uh, we had, a bunch of crawfish last weekend, and we're planning to do that again this weekend. And it, it's just, yeah, life's good. They're a little pricey, but I think
2: they're <laughs> um, Steve, when you grew up in the North Shore, did you eat snow cones, or did y'all did y'all have snowballs on the North Shore?
0: They were enough, uh, either, either bad kids who got sent to private school over there or people who moved across who, uh, who, who brought New Orleans with them. So we definitely had snowballs over there.
2: Well, it's hard to believe that it's been a year since we've all been in lockdown. Um, it, is there anything um, that you've learned over this past year about yourself, about your colleagues that you wish to share with us?
0: You know, I, it, it it almost sounds cliche because there have been so many examples of people really stepping up um, and just dealing, you know, really with all the different challenges that the last year has provided, uh, it's really pretty remarkable. I mean, I look at our team, 40 something people spread around, people who have kids, people, I mean, just everything to manage and the fact that, that we're, you know, plugging away, going strong, things are starting to get better. I mean, it's just really amazing to see it. It does make you feel really good about the future, knowing how well people did in a really difficult time. So I think it's, it's you know, I, I could I talk about the bad sides, but I, I actually want to dwell there because I think it's really, really amazing.
1: I think that's a really good point, Steve. And, you know, we've certainly navigated all of this together, and I think it's been great to have the support and leadership from you and others, and then kind of just from our whole Team working together, we've certainly um, learned a lot about the interior of each other's homes, or at least where we set <laughs> up for <laughs> <are> Zoom <laughs> for Zoom calls. Our animals, our kids, all of that. So it's been it's been a fun year in that way. But shifting gears a little bit, so we we were talking with Dr. Alicia Runfro earlier about um, the midbaritaria sediment diversion and this critical milestone for the project. Um, you know, we often hear about challenges on our coast, right? Every so often there's a new study that's released about rates of sea level rise getting higher. You know, of course, last year's hurricane season, we hope not to repeat it anytime soon, but it was the most active ever recorded. Um, So there's a lot of challenges, but why do you think this project is so important to the future of our region and confronting those challenges?
0: You know, we have a, I mean, the the, the idea of being able to to engage the river, the power of the river, um, in our defense of the coast has been something that's been around for a long time, decades literally, um, uh, and uh, and and the fact that we're now really um, at the, at the really at the precipice of doing that, of actually using what is a really powerful tool, the most powerful tool that we possibly could have, that not only can help um, restore habitat and and rebuild marsh. Um, but also can, can do that in a way that supports all the other projects um, that are going in, the marsh creation projects, dredge projects, that sort of stuff. Um, it's just, a, it's the critical piece to the puzzle. Um, uh, not, that, uh, not that it's going to even get turned on quickly or how long it will take to do its job, but getting this tool in place and moving it forward it has been the most important thing, and now we're, we're just about there. So it's really, really encouraging.
2: Yes, Steve, we were talking with Alicia earlier about this milestone moment for Mid and and you just said it right. This is an important moment. Just double down on that. Why is this DEIS milestone so important?
0: Well, you know, in in, in, a, in the more specific sense, it will it will really lay on the table the best answers that we have about what the benefits of this work will be, what the potential impacts will be. Um, uh, and I, and, and we expect, we'll see, but we expect it will also be a, a discussion about where impacts might be possible, um, how the state looks at those and how the state is going to help on those. And so, so we'll see as this, as this rolls out, but it's the opportunity to have that conversation to look at it and, and, you know, really have it based on, um, as much uh, of a fact basis as we can possibly have, so that's a that's really a good place to be. We, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things that get made up in these discussions about what somebody thinks is going to happen one way or the other. This is going to be the most scientifically valid, best understanding of what we think is going to happen, positive and negative, um, and and what we can do with that. Um, I think that's a great step forward, um, so, so that we can really have that conversation.
1: So Steve, I want to dig in a little bit there. I mean, obviously we understand from our perspective why this project is crucial to building and maintaining wetlands that help protect communities. Of course, the overall health of the ecosystem um, in the future, given the challenges that we discussed earlier in this conversation. But, you know, there's also been attention on the potential, you know, near-term negative impacts as well. So what do you envision the state um, kind of how do you envision them addressing that in, in the rollout of the draft environmental impact statement and over the next few months? And, and what are you kind of looking for there?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think we, we'd like to see uh, as the state identifies uh, the benefits, um, uh, them talking specifically about um, the, the positive economic benefits of this large, very large scale construction project. Um, what we know from, from looking at analysis of this, um, there'll be literally seven th- several thousand jobs um, uh, engaged with the construction and then the ripple effects in the economy as the money from those jobs gets spent across the economy. Um, that's not to be you know laughed at. We're talking about serious employment opportunity. And so we'd like to see not only the, the state talk about that, but also talk about how they can help make sure that uh, local people... Get as many of those jobs as is possible, because that—that's we ought to get that front end benefit here, not for somebody who drove in. To, no offense to South Dakota, but you know I want somebody from Louisiana to get those jobs. So, so really hopeful to see the state talk about moving in that direction, and 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 uh, we'll see, but we're hopeful about that. The second thing is, um, uh, on the where negative impacts are possible, um, we're also expecting to see the state talk in more, much more specific terms than they ever have um, about what, what the state's role will be there, how the state um, can stand with people and help them manage a transition if that's necessary. They're you know, talking particularly about people in some elements of, uh, of, the, of the oyster industry or the shrimp industry, um, where if over time it looks like as the habitat changes, um, the, those uh, shrimp or, or fish are going to be in other places or the oysters are going to have to be grown in different places that the state will be stepping in to be helpful there. Uh, and uh, and so we'll see, but we, we think that's the right role. We think it's important for them to do that. Um, and we're hoping to see that.
2: Steve, I'm, I'm going to gloss over the fact you made us lose our one North Dakota listener and um, want to go back to that that economic piece and I, I joke about this before but but we're building a distribution facility right of the Mississippi River about the jobs and and the economic impact that those jobs will create you are not just making that up y'all did a, an analysis of that and then the DEIS also looked at that as well. So can we dig in on that? Um you know uh, we we have facts that say, you know, that this this 1.4 billion dollar investment will have a ripple effect across the region. Um, but can you can you go into what you really know and what y'all looked at?
0: What what we looked at was uh, uh, as uh, as some listeners will know, um, there's there's the mid varitaria sediment diversion which is um, being looked at here for the the west side uh, of the of the river, and then there is the, the Mid Breton uh, uh, sediment diversion, which is being looked at on the east side of the river. And those will be, uh, if if, uh, if schedules uh, stay kind of where they are right now, those will both be under construction um, at the same time. You know, they'll vary some. It'll be a few years after um, construction begins at uh, uh, at Mid barritaria before it begins in. Uh, in Mid-Bretton, but there's going to be those really large scale projects going on at the same time. And the net result of that will be, I think it's five or six years uh, in a row where just the construction jobs themselves will be somewhere in the seven to eight hundreds there, just right there in, you know, in in Plaquemines Parish, Middle Plaquemines Parish there. Um, And then when you spread that out and look at the spending that goes out into not only Plaquemines, but Orleans and Jefferson, uh, then you're you're talking literally about um, uh, you're literally talking about uh, at, at the peak of all this somewhere around three thousand jobs being supported uh, by both the direct work and then the indirect work and and that those are those are huge numbers by anybody's uh, anybody's measurement if you look at the projects the other kinds of projects that are going in whether they be um, liquid natural natural gas facilities or uh, petrochemical facilities, upriver, you know, th- these, jobs are just serious, man. And, and so there's, th- those are those direct opportunities that we should take advantage of. We also should make sure that if there are people who decide, let's say uh, uh, um, somebody in the oyster business decides that they're, they want to work on land, that they're tired of the, of the lack of certainty about what, it, what it's like to, to make a living off of nature like that. Um, you know, if we do our jobs right, meaning the state does its job right, there'll be training opportunities. There'll be opportunities to move into this coastal restoration world because not only are these projects going on here in Plaquemines Parish, but all across South Louisiana, really for where what we can guarantee today, at least for the next decade, there are going to be construction projects all across the coast as we try to do everything that we can do with the money we already have um, to, to build uh, projects that can really protect us to, to provide the barriers of protection to impro- to improve the habitat the things that that we' are, we are know are going to happen over the next decade because the money's already um, on, you know already in place um, so so not only can you if you get a job working at these things can not only can you develop your skills yeah you can move
2: yeah. And, and you know, we've seen, I have a close example with the LA1 coalition when they built um, the road down. I mean, we saw that money just roll over in the community again and again from everything from gas stations to laundromats to, I mean, you know it, um, you know, food trucks popped up here and stuff mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm, and so it mm-hmm. really does roll over quite a bit in the community.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's that's a good thing <laughs> Just say <like> that, but <laughs> we just got to take advantage of it. That's the key. So Steve, um, I want to
1: dig in on, you know, beyond the construction of the projects, which is which are obviously important and will have a, a significant impact, um, you know, regionally as well as locally in the parish. Th- these projects are important in that, you know, they are kind of managed and operated over time, right? So they're not just built and left alone, but there will be kind of robust monitoring that is involved of the project as well as kind of adaptive management. So can can you talk about that and the role it plays into the success of the project over time?
0: Yeah, you know, change is really uh, sort of a cliche to say it this way, but change is a constant here. I mean, that anybody who's worked on the water, worked uh, in the fishing industry certainly understands that, um, that reefs move, that fishing areas move. I mean, not only daily, but, uh, but certainly over the years. And that's certainly been the case here. Um, as the areas that we're talking about now, which will, as a result of the river, uh, become much more freshwater again, where if you scroll back about 80 years, we're uh, predominantly freshwater then. Um, but in the meantime, as we've lost coast, as the Gulf moves in on us, it's become more saltwater. So so the types of fish that are here uh, are not have always been here, but they're here now because of the changes that have occurred. And as we um, as we move back in the direction of the way things used to be, um, they will change again. So, what does that mean for an operation of a big of a big project like this? You know, previously, honestly, uh, you know, in an engineering solution like this, would be, you know, you put it in and and uh, and and then you're done. <laughs> you know, and so you hope it works. Um, and you know, we live with the results of some of those things. Sometimes, really negative, um, because they don't turn out the way we think. One of the real benefits of, of, of building any project today, but certainly something like this, is that we will have, already have, more monitoring of the basin area than any place, frankly, certainly in this country and probably in the world. And that information, the data about salinity, about temperature, about oxygen levels, about all of the aspects of managing um, in, in the environment like that, All of that information is going to be available to us and allow us to know what's going on in that system. And so if we see things happening out there that we didn't expect, then we can basically turn the dials on the system, turn up the water, slow it down, make sure that we're managing for the impacts that might be out there um, as we build this land. So, So we're at a time now where we can actually be so much smarter and frankly, so much more humble about what the results of this are going to be because we will learn as we go forward because we're going to have the information on which to make decisions and and really make sure that that's how we do it. So that's what adaptive management is all about is actually using the information that we have to make these decisions. It's really, uh, that's maybe the the most exciting and best part of this overall project is the ability to actually learn as we go along and, and adjust, based
1: on that learning. Yeah. And, you know, in our prior segment, Alicia referenced the CRIMS system, which is kind of the most robust coastal monitoring system in the world that already exists in Louisiana. So you would assume only more attention and resources will be put toward monitoring of the Barataria Basin with the project, correct?
0: Yeah, there's the, there's the, the coastal, the, the CRIMS, and then there's a swamp system as well, which is a longer acronym even, but it's, you know, we really have a lot of, a lot of data gathering going on out there to make sure that we know what's going on in that system and then we can use it that way.
2: So let's, let's talk about the people along with the DEIS. There is a public comment period. Steve, what would your message be to, to people, you know, locally, regionally, even nationally on why they should engage in this process over the comment period?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is going to affect, uh, this is going to affect our world, uh, our home, uh, and, and anybody who has an interest in that outcome, this is the opportunity to really, uh, to, to see what's going on and to, if they have concerns or they have support or however that goes, the questions they want to make sure gets answered, this is the opportunity to do it. Um, you know, this, this is the time it, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, been coming for a while. People are very aware of the system that's uh, that they're that they're living in, and 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 a lot of people have ideas. That's what there was a scoping um, at the beginning of this process that solicited people's ideas. This will respond to that. This DEIS will respond to that, and then um, then the, the the comments that come in now will also be uh, taken into consideration when they make final decisions. So now's the time. I, I just really encourage people to do it. We're certainly going to do that, um, and uh, and the, and the process will be better for it.
2: Yeah, I am looking forward. We, we've actually um, are, are looking forward to engaging folks and making sure that they understand more about the DEIS and the accompanying restoration plan. So I think you'll hear more out of our groups um, soon about how we can better connect the people to the process.
1: So, Steve, you are no doubt very busy, and I know, like most of us, you're going to be busy for the, the months and years ahead, but I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about some other work that's related, but also very important to the future of Louisiana's coast. Um, you've been involved as part of the Equity Task Force, or Equity Committee, as part of the Governor's Climate Initiatives Task Force. So, can you tell us a little bit about that work and why it is so important to Louisiana's coast and future?
0: Yeah, actually a couple of things. One, uh, uh, the governor uh, 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 committed Louisiana to moving in this direction uh, because of of the coast. I mean, he specifically called out the fact that if we can't, if the world can't begin to control the emissions that are driving global warming, then we can't, we won't see um, sea level rise stopped. We won't see it slowed enough to allow us to manage it. So we're spending billions of dollars on the coast to be protected, to make sure that the habitat is what it needs to be to support all of the uh, all of the reasons that we want that. Um, and if we don't also manage against sea level rise, then we won't be able to be successful. So 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 the governor said, you know, we can't just be standing back and saying, hey, you know, you guys, you go fix that part for us. We're going to contribute, and that's what the climate initiatives task force is about. Um, Now, there there are several different advisory committees associated with that. One of them is the one you mentioned, um, the the advisory committee on equity. Um, And the the purpose of that is to make sure that as we develop recommendations for policies to reduce emissions um, and to go forward and to develop um, industries that might be cleaner over time, as we do those things, we want to have this equity lens. We want to make sure that we do everything we can with every policy to, number one, not make things worse and that's not always what we do when we bring in new industries or when we um, or we make decisions about how we're going to manage them um, and we want to make sure that that we don't we, we certainly don't want to make things worse but we also want to look at every opportunity to make things better for for frankly um, uh, low-income people uh, black people uh, uh, native uh, tribes who have uh, have over history um, suffered uh, rather than benefited from a lot of the things that we're gonna to need to be doing going forward. So um, the, the governor wanted to make sure that uh, we were making, we were looking at those issues at the same time that we were looking about how we might, um, how we might deal with these climate emissions. So I think it's a really, it's not an easy thing to do, not an easy conversation to have, really important one. And so I'm really glad, gotta give give governor the credit for for being willing to have this conversation and then we try to need to make it as useful as we can.
1: Yeah, thank you, Stephen. We've had some guests on the show prior that have touched on the climate initiatives task force, and definitely hope we can continue to talk about it in future episodes as it moves forward. I do want to ask kind of a global question for you personally. I mean, you've worked in this space and in Louisiana for for you know a while, and you've seen a lot of shifts in different areas. Um, It seems like right now with the work that's going on on Louisiana's coast and actually implementing these large scale projects, as well as, you know, the state taking a look at how it evolves industry and kind of addresses the needs of, you know, those who have been traditionally left out of certain conversations. I mean, it seems like there's momentum and progress happening, um, you know, in a very short amount of time. I mean, do you have any reflections on that based on kind of the years of experience you've had working in the space?
0: I just think it's a, it's a really, honestly, a really special moment in time for Louisiana. Um, uh, there, there are lots of transitions, economic and otherwise, going on in the world. Um, and, and I think we're better positioned to pay attention to those um, than we might have been um, 30 years ago when I was in state government. Um, and we, and we, we have to take advantage of the knowledge. you know. So we're seeing uh, Louisiana is an unquestioned energy state. Um, that's been our heritage. Um, there are a lot of us who think it can be our future, uh, but that means a mix of the kinds of energies we're talking about, not just largely dependent on one over time. And that's certainly where the rest of the world is going. But that means that there are opportunities associated with that, and so part of the challenge is to really take advantage of that. I love seeing some of the some of the shipbuilding going on down in Homa um, uh, for ships that are actually, you know, these are lift boats that actually are employed. Um, off of Block Island in Rhode Island, in Rhode Island where they're um, where they're building wind farms, or in the North Sea, where they're building wind farms. So we're taking the same set of skills, the same um, set of knowledge, and and that's been used in the offshore industry, which is going to continue for years, right? That's not going away. Uh, but but we're applying that to new areas, and that's how you grow businesses. That's how you grow an economy. So it's wonderful to see that we see great. Um, new analysis out of the Bureau of Energy offshore energy Management talking about the wind opportunities that exist in the Gulf. I, again, we are really poised to be able to take advantage of those kinds of things um, and so that's I just think that's a special time and, and trying to do that and keep in mind that uh, that equity does matter doing all that at the same time that, I just that's just fine. <laughs> I mean it's the right way to do it doesn't mean it's easy. But boy, it's the right way to do it, and we're and I think Louisiana is really stepping into that. I'm really proud of that. I'm really glad to see that.
2: Shout out to Joe O. Joe Ogeron, state representative, avid listener of Delta Dispatches. He always surprises me with a comment uh, about me and Jacques' rapport. <laughs> uh, Joe Ogeron to to tell our listeners um, is is one of the guys that innovated those lift boats off of Block Island and said, hey, we could use this boat for that. Now he's kind of the win guy, the go-to guy on that.
0: And I, I look forward to meeting him. I have read about him and I, and I think it's really interesting to see uh, to see uh, what he's doing.
2: He is one of my favorite lunch dates. Um, <laughs> so when the world comes back to normal, we'll have to do that. Yeah. But St- Steve, we, we don't want to take too much more of your time. We, we want to wrap it up. And we said this earlier, you're a busy man, but what else are you looking forward to in 2021?
0: Well, maybe maybe y'all invite me back maybe maybe I can <laughs> that lunch that. oh whole <laughs> yeah. right? no we'll think about it <laughs> <laughs> that's, right. that's
2: right are there other honestly are there other big milestones on the horizon um you know I know you're working on the 2023 master plan uh, you've looked at the annual plan there's a mayor's race there's lots of fun things coming up right
0: yeah I mean the 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 nuts and bolts of getting the coastal work done um you're right to point to the Annual plan. It's such an important process of of, uh, the the state moving forward and saying, articulating clearly what will happen this year in terms of which projects, uh, where they'll be, how much money will be spent, um, uh, and therefore, you know, what sort of the economic impact can be. Um, All of that will be happening in the legislature early, I think, I guess, uh, sort of in April. Um, It's important for that to move forward because that's the basis on which. Um, on which the work uh, gets done. And, and in that process, they'll also look out at it the next three years in terms of projects. And at the same time, the work is going forward by the state. One of the, I think, absolute genius parts of how the state goes about this work is that they, they do a new plan every six years. Now, that's not scrap the old one, let's do a brand new thing. It's like, okay, what's happened? What do we know about the science of, of climate change? What do we know about sea level rise? What do we know about the projects that are already in or working now? How do we build all that together, take advantage of everything that we know now that we didn't know six years ago and make sure the plan stays up to date? That's a great way to do it. It also means that the legislature has an opportunity to 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 look at it, to be a part of it and do that as well, which is important, too, because you want to maintain political support uh, as well as financial support for this work. So uh, these 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 happen. Uh, the annual plan every year, it'll be 2023 when we do finish up the master plan for this next round. But uh, but a lot of good work going on in the meantime.
1: No shortage of work. And so, Steve, well, we definitely have to have you back on more frequently and, and soon to kind of dig in on a lot of this because it's just so much to cover. But really do appreciate your time. Um, I know you're very busy. So this has been very helpful insight that you've shared with us and our listeners. Of course, we cannot let you go without... The fun question. I don't remember. I'll have to go back and ask um, and listen to see what uh, the fun question we asked you the first time was. But regardless, today the fun question is digging into a topic that was quite controversial last year on Delta Dispatches. And I think it spurred, we had a lot of conversation about it. It spurred kind of conversations on Twitter and elsewhere. Um,
2: (laughs) I can't wait to hear what this is just so you know, Steve, I don't know either, (laughs) but
1: my question to you, Steve, given that it is crawfish season and so that you've, and you said you've already enjoyed a good deal of crawfish. You hope to enjoy some more. My question to you is, do you dip your crawfish? And if so, do you have a special crawfish dip recipe?
2: There's only one answer to this, Steve.
1: I am not a a dipper, man. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. That's okay. We will forgive you. So just so you know, I, I grew up dipping. You know, my dad had his own special crawfish dip recipe. Others do as well. It sounds like though, we did some investigating. All roads for the crawfish dip lead back to HOMA. So HOMA. Absolutely. Yes. It was from grandfather Bear and the folks there in Homa that that dipped their crawfish and then passed down through my through my family. And, and then we found like Simone's family, they dip you know, uh, James Karst's, uh, has, you know, friends and colleagues that, that dip and they're all from Homa. So it sounds like. So,
0: so what's the what's the answer? What's your answer, Simone?
2: Uh, Steve dip all day, all day. It's, so and look there's also a controversy if you dip your actual um like shrimp or crawfish versus your just like your potatoes like some people just dip one or the other homa is also the um the seat for potato salad in or potato salad out so just a whole nother controversial topic that we won't bring up now Um, but there's a company there's a a company in um down the bayou It's called wowie and they make the like basically dip sauce in a bottle. And so like when you're in a real pinch and don't have time to to mix up your secret sauce, you can get some Wowie. And I have found Wowie at Dornay's. Wow. So it's creeping into
1: the city. Simone, we should have bottled up our recipe a few uh, decades ago. <laughs> we could have our own little so Wowie you know,
0: sauce. I am glad, I'm glad to see that y'all are becoming commercially viable with endorsements. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Y'all going to be getting some Wowie on your doorstep <laughs>
0: soon.
1: <laughs> All right, Steve. Well, thanks so much. And we'll, we'll look to have you back soon. And best of luck with so much of the work that you have going on. And thank you again. Um, and with that, it is time for our Coastal Voice of the Week. This week is from Tina and Lafitte. And Tina says, I support the coast because I was born and raised in St. Bernard Parish. And now I now live in Lafitte. It's beautiful here. There are lots of things to see. The people are nice, and the food is awesome. I just love it here. Well, I'm glad for that perspective, Tina, and I agree. Lafitte is a beautiful place. Um, thank you for sharing your voice. And reminder, you can always share your own coastal perspective at MississippiRiverDelta.org/slash/restore-the-coast. And that is a wrap on this episode, Simone. But more greatness to come from Delta Dispatches, no doubt.
0: Yes,
2: yes. You can like. Thank
0: you guys for doing this. It's really, really fun.
2: Thanks, Steve. You can like, rate, and subscribe and share the Delta Dispatches
1: podcast. And until then, we will see y'all later. Alligators.